So even though this movie stars Spencer Spencer Tracy, I had not heard of this movie until we were kind of researching ideas for films for our American history list here. Uh, so this is Edison the Man from 1940. It's an 80-62 on Rotten Tomatoes uh, with one Oscar nomination for original screenplay. And I'm always curious when we watch these older movies, I feel like I have more patience for them. This is another movie that I would say is not great, eh, but it's fine. And so how did you feel about the film? I'm, I go a little further than you. I would say that Spencer Tracy movies were 0 for 2. Okay. We did Northwest Passage. That actually, it came out the same year. That's they, they right. Both, both came out in 1940. It was a different world back then. You would basically just go work for a month on that movie that was already kind of pre-planned. They used move over to the next movie and everything else was right. already kind of set up. It was just like you have a different system back then. But yes, you're right. They're, yeah. So, so 0 for 2. <laughs> two back-to-back 1940 Spencer Tracy movies, and I'm, I wasn't really a fan of this one either. I didn't really like Northwest Passage, and this one was, I don't know, it's just, maybe it is my patience with the 1940s-ness of this movie, but at the same time, like, I've seen... Like Casablanca and stuff, I've right. seen movies from the air, Casablanca, I've seen a lot of, like, the old, like, you know, noir detective movies. I got a lot of patience for those. I'll watch okay. those. I like those just fine. But just the kind of standard dramas are are just you're just kind of like I just do something. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It, maybe it's like a thing with these being historical movies, and they don't take as much care with the histor historicity historicity. I think, whatever just, the word I think is. we landed on historicity. Okay, they don't take as much care with the historicity as I feel like some newer historical movies would. Right, and I agree with that. And that just kind of, I don't know, not really bothers me, but it's just, I don't know. It makes me it makes me have less patience for the 1940-ness of this movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, again, I think it may as simple as, hey, the great movies from the 40s still hold up and are great movies, but the average movies from the 40s are just like, they're just less entertaining than an average movie today. Well, and it does... I, I I have noticed too that like a movie made in 1940 that's set in 1940, I can watch and appreciate just fine. Oh, okay. okay. A movie that's made in 1940 and set in the 1750s or set in the 1870s, not as good. Okay, okay. It is kind of interesting how over the decades movies have shifted with what's okay. We've talked before about the language thing, and it's kind of only in the last 15 years that they've stopped using English as a proxy for foreign languages in most films, mm -hmm. whereas before that was like the default. Now it's the exception. You almost hardly ever see it nowadays. Similar with these historical fiction films, nowadays they make a point to not make up characters. And we even... Right. That, and that one, we talked about Glory recently. Even in Glory, they were making up characters. But that was 1989. In the last 15 years, give or take, they kind of just don't do that anymore. They might combine characters. Like, hey, we're going to take these two people and make them this one person. But they rarely right. seem to make up characters in historical movies to the extent they did. Just like with Glory in this film, it's like you have a handful of actual guys who are Edison's lab assistants that you could use their names and their backgrounds. And they're like, nope, it's Thomas Edison, uh, Thomas Edison and his wife. And everybody else is a fictional character because we don't care. It's just so, right. so bizarre when you have these real people you could pull from. 
And it's so weird, too, because if you're making a biopic about Edison, why would you make up some fake businessman for him to have this rivalry right. with when he had an actual rivalry with Tesla in right. real life that is way more interesting? Right, and we'll get to later, yeah, yeah. And is actually a better story because it's not just, oh, it's this guy, it's not Edison and his electricity versus this other guy and his, you know, his gas or whatever. Right. It's Edison and his DC versus Tesla and his AC, which we'll talk a little bit more about when we talk about, you know, the war of the currents and everything. But that's a way better story than what they actually had. Like the actual history is a better story than this. The screenplay is worse. Narrative. Right. I think. Well, I think a big thing is, too, and I don't know if this is a Hayes Code thing necessarily, but they did not want nuanced characters in the 40s. They wanted heroes and villains, and your main character, played by your star, was always going to be a hero. And if you introduce the story with his rivalry with Tesla, you're going to have to see maybe a darker side of Edison versus in here. He's the virtuous Randian hero the entire time, and everyone against him is just doubting his genius, and he pulls it off. And he is the paragon of excellence the entire film. But I also feel like if you really wanted to, you could just write the Edison versus Tesla story and just make it completely pro-Edison and make Tesla the villain. Well, and that's a good point, too. Even that, I mean, if you take a really, like, black and white view of it, even that you could make a better movie. And even if it's not as historically accurate, because there is way more nuance and honestly... In my opinion, Edison is probably closer to the villain than Tesla is. But if you wanted to make the Edison versus Tesla movie and really have Edison be the hero and Tesla be the villain, you could make that and at least your two characters are real people. Right, right. Yeah, it's it's bizarre. It's bizarre. Again, I, I don't know. I, anyways, it's, just, it's just interesting to examine all of this. As far as in our timeline here, so last time we discussed the Wounded Knee Massacre that was in December of 1890. And most of this film takes place before that. We actually start in 1929, then we flash back to basically 1869, and we kind of get Edison's career, but leading up to with the climax being the light bulb. I I think ultimately the reason I did decide to include this in kind of the 1890s or after the Wounded Knee Massacre for us is because Edison did have this decades-long career, and the 1890s is kind of where you could put his role in the development of motion pictures, which is not highlighted right. in this film. It's kind of mentioned at the end in like kind of a scroll going through all his inventions. So that's kind of why we're shoehorning it in here. But again, when it's kind of taking decades long here, uh, you can kind of put it anywhere. So that's why it is where it is. But most of this film does take place before the last couple of films we've discussed. So even at the time, though, uh, some critics were calling out the inaccuracies uh, in this film, which was interesting. But overall, uh, the critics at the time seemed to be kind of impressed <laughs> that they turned a movie about boring lab research into an actually somewhat engaging film. So it did get mostly positive reviews and the one Oscar nomination at the time. I originally thought, I think this was kind of misleading on the Wikipedia page. It brings it up saying it was... Uh, on AFI's list for uh, 100 Cheers, but it was actually only nominated. It wasn't on the list of 100 Years, 100 Cheers, or whatever. It was mm. just a nominee to potentially... Because it, it is a good moment. I mean, <laughs> spoiler alert. <laughs> Edison invents a light bulb. <laughs> and, and then this is something... And actually, this is kind of accurate. And you'll, you'll talk more about this. But the, So the, the climax of the film is not just when they first create the light bulb, but when they then go a step beyond, and they want to... 
electrically light New York City. And then there's right. kind of this countdown, and that's the gas rivalry and stuff that comes up again, though, with the fictional antagonist there. Uh, and it's kind of like, will they or won't they? And it kind of comes down to the last minute, throw the switch, lights up on New York City, and the the crowd, like just the pedestrians walking around, are like, "Holy cow, he did it!" And so it's kind of a it is kind of a cheer moment that I thought did work pretty well. And then a few things before you get to uh, Edison's story here, so. Again, we start with this golden jubilee for of, of light in 1929. They kind of have Edison come in. That was an actual thing. They did have a celebration October 21st, 1929. It was actually in Dearborn, Michigan, though, which I don't think the film indicates at all. I think they may just kind of let you think it's in New York City or they just don't say at all. They said that it's they had it in a replica of Independence Hall, which I thought was hmm. strange. Is that... Hmm. Did you see? Was that real? Did they actually build a replica of Independence Hall to have this jubilee of light? Oh, I guess I did. I'd, I'd, I'd have to look a little closer at that. So yeah, it wasn't Dearborn, Michigan. Basically, Henry Ford kind of pulled some strings to get it in Michigan because mm-hmm. uh, there was issues uh, other 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 places. But the more interesting thing there actually is that uh, this was just days before the stock market crash in 1929 that this golden jubilee happened. Mm. But then they also did this kind of neat thing, and I'm guessing it would have been like broadcast on the radio or whatever at the time. So to like honor the accomplishment of electric light, they kind of asked everybody listening across the country, hey, everyone turn off all of your lights. And then like after the talk or kind of, you know, at at some point indicated later in the proceedings, they're like, and put them back on. And so the whole country could kind of light back up at once kind of during the ceremony as like a nod to, I'm like, that's that's actually kind of a neat moment for all that. Um, But yes. General Powell, who's kind of his main advocate, fictional. Mr. Taggart, who's the antagonist, fictional. All his lab partners in the film, fictional. It's just so, so crazy. I, I, did sign, I didn't do any deep dives on these guys, but I did find real names like Charles Batchelor, Francis Gell, Francis Upton. Those are actual guys, scientists, working with Edison in his labs, and they easily could have used any and all of those guys. And even if you change their stories, I, I, it's just so bizarre how we're having the same conversation with all these different historical movies because it was the same thing with the with the African American soldiers in glory. It's like, why did you not use these actual names even if you changed yeah. their backstory? You're changing Edison's backstory a right. little bit. Why not change these guys? Even if you don't know anything about them, like even if the only historical record of them is that this person existed in this place at this time, cool. Then you have like carte blanche to write whatever you want, like make them whatever character you want, but at least. At least use, like, right. the real name. Was it a research thing? Are, are we taking it for granted that, hey, I can just go on Wikipedia and look up a whole page about Charles Batchelor, but if I'm a screenwriter in 1940s Hollywood, I'm like, I don't know how to find information about Charles Batchelor, and I just don't bother, and I make someone up? Is it that? I think it's the I don't bother part. Okay. More okay. than I can't. I think it's gotcha. I think it's screenwriters were less concerned, more concerned with, I'm just getting something out there, people will watch it. You know, right. it's the 1940s. Movies are bad. Like, who cares? Well, and it's that kind of factory. You know, it's almost like they had a, uh, you know, Henry Ford model to making movies back then. So was it as like, yeah, I could, but I'm not getting paid to do that. I'm getting paid to finish this script by Friday, and then I got to start the next script. Exactly. It's a cost-benefit thing. People are going to go see this movie just because of the name Edison. No one cares. And we got, and we got Spencer Tracy attached. Literally nothing else matters. Right. No one cares what how historically accurate the story is, wow. who the other characters are, whether any of this stuff actually happened the way that we're uh. going to say it happens in the movie. No one gives a shit. We're just going to make a movie. We're going to put Thomas Edison's name on it, starring Spencer Tracy. Start 
cash and checks. Right. We probably had one book or something to go off of for, you know, to get some plot point things. He get his wife's name right, and then we just move along. Okay, but, like, there is, we'll talk about it more, but there is stuff that they got right. They got a lot they of They clearly right. did yeah. some research. No, right, right. They didn't make it all up. Yeah, so they couldn't have just done a little bit more? I don't know. Yeah, um, but, it, so, yeah, maybe it is just, <laughs> it, it is just the way, because, so, even, this is, this show's not about Casablanca today, but, like, even back when Casablanca, that was just one of a dozen movies that just happened to hit. Like, they didn't know while they were making Casablanca, they were making arguably the greatest movie of all time. Not even just to that point, but possibly ever for generations to come. Right. It was just one of a dozen that got made, and they just moved on and the next one. And then it's like, after the fact, the critics are like, dude, y'all just made an amazing movie over there. Oh, yeah, I guess we kind of did. Like, it's just kind of plugging away. Everyone had moved on, and you just don't even... Anyway, so I almost give them a pass versus glory with those African-American soldiers. It's like, okay, come on, this is the 80s. You need to be doing better by... By this point. Yeah. All right. So the movie uh, focuses on Thomas Edison, obviously. (laughs) The name is Edison the Man. He was born in Ohio in 1847, but grew up on a family farm in Michigan, in Port Huron. He only went to school for three months, but learned to read and write from his mother, who was educated. His family was actually from Canada. Well, His grandfather lived in the American colonies, but was a loyalist and was forced Mm. to flee to Canada. Interesting. And then his dad got in some trouble for some political rebellion in Canada and had to flee back from Canada to the United States. So his mother was from Canada and she was educated. In the movie, when he's being interviewed by those two kids in 1920s at the very beginning. Oh, right, right. He says, oh, I was... You know, my mother was a school marm. Like, that's how I was educated. I didn't see anything that said that she was a teacher, but she was educated to teach him how to read and write. Okay. And so then he kind of then educated himself by just reading a bunch of books about, you know, whatever he wanted. He taught himself Morse code as a child and began working as a telegraph operator for a newspaper. And as a child also began going deaf. Oh, yeah. They so that is something that we see in the movie. Yeah, during that... During that casual Fourth Amendment violation by the police officer when he shows up to New York City for the first time at the very at the beginning, oh when yeah, it first switches yeah. back to eighteen sixty nine. Yeah, they're still following him around, right? The the cop he's like knocking on the doors and the windows trying to get into that lab, and the cop is like, "Hey, you there? What are you doing? Hey, you!" And he's not responding to him, so the cop pulls out his gun and just blasts off around into yeah. the air. And the, is he like, so Thomas Edison like turns around like, what the hell's going on? And he's like, I was calling for you. Didn't you hear me? And he's like, oh, no, I'm, I'm hard of hearing. I can't hear. And he sees that, that he's holding this like package, like a bundle with like, you know, wrapped up in paper. And he's like, what's that? Open it up. Right, <laughs> it's like, right. you can't do that. <laughs> and then the shopkeeper comes out and this cop who's just fired his gun and <laughs> violated this guy's constitutional rights is like, oh, you know this guy? All right, see you later. It just walks away. <laughs> is that the same cop that later is like right standing by him when they, when they kiss for the first time or something? Or is that a different cop? Oh, I didn't. I didn't even notice that. Uh, <laughs> I just thought, okay, I didn't even notice. I didn't notice if, if that was the case or not, but I just thought it was funny. Like, man, 
policing has really changed since the 1860s. <laughs> <laughs> you can just fire after, and this isn't the Wild West either. They're not in the, like some sparsely. Right, this is New York City. New York City. He just cranks a round off <laughs> into the air. That landed somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! Uh, but anyway, so he he was actually hard of hearing, basically borderline deaf. It's not 100% known why. Some people think maybe it was an infection, an ear infection. Um, it's possible that his hearing was damaged either by his work because he worked selling um, newspapers and stuff on trains. Mm. And then also because he had taught himself Morse code and was working as a telegraph operator, you know, there wasn't a lot of safety standards, hearing safety standards for the uh, headsets they would wear. So oh, right. it's possible that it was just that constant you know noise from a very young age just basically ruined his hearing oh man he probably had tinnitus like no other then oh had to have yeah (laughs) yeah had to have so he did start at a pretty young age trying to um, become an inventor his first patent was a vote counting machine in 1869 it is actually mentioned in the movie as well And see, this is exactly the stuff that I'm talking about. So they got his, he, they got that he was hard of hearing. Right. They got that his first patent was a vote counting machine. So they did. Somebody was doing some research. But then they make up his friends in New York that he she gets introduced with. And then right, then they just make up everybody else with the exception of his wife. Uh, but even her, I would say, is the that, only thing that's yeah, the only thing that's accurate about her in the movie is her name. Okay. Anyways, so uh, he does move to New York at the age of 22 to sell telegraph machines so he switched from being a telegraph operator to building and selling telegraph machines because there was more money in it so the ambition we kind of see in the film is probably accurate as well then a hundred percent because at the time there were no like celebrities or it wasn't like you know movie stars weren't a thing yet oh right and so during this time of like the industrial revolution and shortly thereafter inventor was kind of the closest thing that you got to a celebrity or a you know an influencer if you could invent something that everybody used and everybody knew that was like your ticket to fame huh right so he moves to new york and starts inventing is selling telegraph machines and meets mary stillwell in 1871 we do see in the movie that he meets her working in the shop which is accurate she did they did work in the same place what we don't see in the movie is that she was 16 years old. Huh. Well, if he's 22, that's... 24. Okay. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Wait, what age did they get married? <laughs> Two months after they met. Oh. He was 24 and she was 16. Huh. Yeah. 1800s. Yep. <laughs> so, so there's that. In 1876, he bought Menlo Park the laboratory that he's most known for. Shown in the film as well, yep. Yeah, he and his team spent all day, every day, well, all day, six days a week. He didn't work on Sundays. But all day, six days a week, just inventing. And they were both trying to invent things that would be useful and also taking already existing inventions and then slightly improving them to be able to get a patent on their slightly improved version which they don't really show that in the film they show the economic incentive and the creative incentive for like things that maybe not be profitable at first they kind of were doing both worlds there but they really don't hint upon the idea that we're just making tweaks that technically allow us to get a patent uh which is kind of like a big money maker that they just remove from the film completely correct okay which that's kind of like 
Edison's thing. He did invent, there is stuff that he invented whole cloth that had never been invented before, but there was also a lot of stuff where the thing already existed. He would just make some slight improvements on it and then patent it and get a bunch of money. And that's where some of the shady stuff kind of comes in, right? Where it's just like, what right did he even have to start with someone else's invention and then claim this adjustment as now his own whole cloth? Or is that not necessarily the shady stuff? Well, I don't know that I would say that it's shady because it, some like that stuff he wasn't necessarily claiming as his invention. I gotcha. He is patenting just the improvement. Maybe kind of insinuating it, but not outright saying, I invented this thing. Okay. But it is... It is this this difference between... He's not Da Vinci. Right, portraying yourself as the greatest inventor of all time and I made up all these cool things, when in reality it's like, you did invent a lot of cool things, and then you also just took some things that people had already invented and improved them to get a patent to just make a bunch of money. Which we kind of see, I guess, with the repeating stock ticker or whatever that he showed at the beginning, because the one he fixes is not his own invention, and then they ask him about the other one, and he does kind of then make an improved version of this thing that already exists. So I guess we do do see that. Right. For instance, the same year he bought Menlo Park, uh, 1876, Alexander Graham Bell debuted the telephone. Yeah. So Edison worried that the popularity of the telephone would start to cut in on his telegraph business. Okay had his team develop an improved version of the telephone that they then patented the same year. And uh, I didn't realize, because they, they really don't address the telephone in the film at all. And I guess in my mind, I didn't realize the telephone came before the light bulb. And then all of a sudden, at one point in the film, Edison needs to like, get a hold of his crew. And he like goes to the wall and like talks into this thing. I was like, wait a second, there's phones? Like, Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the tel- yeah, the telephone was actually invented two years before he gets his light bulb. Okay, okay. His first original invention was the phonograph. That's 1877. The wax cylinder thing, we see that in the film as well, right? Yeah. Yes. See, and here's something else. Another thing that they got right as a historical detail, the first sound that he recorded on his phonograph is the nursery rhyme, Mary Had a Little Lamb. Yeah, yeah. So they got that right. <laughs> <laughs> that's That's what irks me. Right, so they did research. That's the stuff that irks me. Right. Somebody did research. They just ignored all of the other people besides Edison. Hmm. So between the telegraphs that he'd invented, numerous improvements, phonographs, and telephones, he was raking in the dough. Okay. And this is when people started to give him the nickname the Wizard of Menlo Park because he was starting to invent all these things that had practical uses. He was marketing the hell out of them. Everyone was buying them. So these people, you know, your everyday person in New York City would have the all these inventions, these new inventions, like, oh man, I've got this thing that records sound. I'm talking to my buddy across the city on this telephone. You know, the people are using multiplex telegraphs. And it's like, who's responsible for all this technological innovation that's making my life so much better and easier? Thomas Edison. So he is definitely that celebrity then. And I also give the film credit for, I feel like when you're in grade school, you're fed this idea of him as the lone genius working tirelessly by himself to invent the light bulb. But the film shows this. No, he's got a whole staff. He's giving them all instructions. It's you got 18 guys doing 18 different versions of what may end up getting you the result right. you want. So you have to have a team, but it's not him by himself. Yeah. And, and I don't, I don't even think that that necessarily takes away from no exactly Edison's genius. Not like at no all. one, no one is looking at at someone like an like a 
you know, a Bill Gates or an Elon Musk or a Steve Jobs and saying, oh, well, they're actually not that influential because they have other people working for them. Right. It's like, no, that's part of innovation is you have, you know, you you are the mind, but you have other people working and helping you. That doesn't make your accomplishments any less. Right. Jobs, I think, famously didn't know how to do any of the actual computery, sciencey stuff. He was just the design guy. Right. He's mostly just, yeah, the, the design guy and the marketing guy. Right. But he's yeah. still driving. He's still kind of the director driving those projects. So kind of Edison right. is driving the project to invent these things. And without Steve Jobs, Apple doesn't exist. Right. Right. Even just because he didn't know how to build a circuit board, that's almost irrelevant. Yeah. Right. So in 1878, Edison begins his journey to create the longer-lasting light bulb. That's another thing. Oh, so they did have light bulbs. They just basically burned out instantly? People knew how to make electric light or light bulbs, but, right, they would burn out. They, they, weren't, they weren't practical for the real world because it's gotcha. like, oh, well, this gas lamp lasts me however many hours. Right. And your light bulb lasts for 10 minutes before it burns out. So, like... Yeah, it's it's like a cool novelty thing, but why why would I ever have this in my house? I'm not going to be changing a light bulb every 10 minutes. Right. It's, it's not practical. So it wasn't that he even invented the light bulb. It's that he invented the practical, usable, commercial light bulb. Correct. Yes. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. So he says that he's going he's gonna to invent this longer-lasting light bulb. He's going to replace, you know, it's, it's going to replace uh, oil lamps and gas lamps. And because of that, Stock in his company went way up. A year later, still no light bulb. Right now, this is when people start to say, "Oh, Edison's a charlatan. Edison's a liar. He's just he makes all these big claims just to pump up his stock," which is not untrue either. Right? Not necessarily untrue, but at the same time, he was working to try and make it true. Right, but he also maybe did kind of inflate his capability as far as what he could do and how fast he could do it. Man, and I don't know enough about Jobs. I'm feeling more and more like Jobs is maybe one of the best comparisons because he sometimes kind of got, you know, oh, you know, I think to him getting like fired from Apple and then coming back and people doubting if he can actually pull up or rolling their eyes at Apple, but then they still kind of comes through in the end. I don't know. I just feel like there's maybe a little comparison there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and we will definitely talk about Steve Jobs later in this okay. series. Okay. Oh, true, true. Yeah. hundred hundred years from now. <laughs> so. Part of the reason why it was so difficult to develop the longer lasting light bulb is because he had to develop all the stuff that he needed to develop the light bulb first. Mm. So before you can make a longer lasting light bulb, you have to develop all the machines to make the parts. You have to develop the machines to make those machines. You have to develop the generators to because it's not like you could just flip a light switch in <laughs> 1878. You had to generate your electricity first. So this is actually leads into how he came to be connected with Nikola Tesla. Okay. So in his, and I'm going to save a lot of the Tesla stuff. Right. We'll talk about Tesla later. For the Tesla episode, but we, I, I will give a little bit of a summary here. So Edison has these generators in his shop, in his laboratory that they're using to power all of their test bulbs. These generators are, uh, they generate DC, or direct current power. Which means basically a constant steady flow of electricity. Right. Yeah. Well, right. it means that it only flows in one direction. Oh, okay. It only flows in one direction. Okay. 
So he has these DC generators, and they're finicky. They're breaking all the time. Nikola Tesla has just moved to America, and he is an expert in DC generators. So he approaches Edison, says, can I work for you? And I'll fix all these issues that you're having with your DC generators. Edison says, absolutely. And if you fix them as a bonus, I'll give you $50,000. Basically as like, I'll, I'll you know pay you for your job. But if you get these generators all fixed and working correctly, I'll give you a $50,000 bonus, which at the time- That's huge. $1.5 million. Right. $1,551,000 in today's money, uh. which, and this is actually a little side note, in the movie, at the very beginning, he meets Mr. L's, and there's another guy in that in that little shop at the very beginning when he first moves to New York City. Yes, yes. And he's like, oh, can I borrow some money? And Edison, you know, pulls some money out of his pocket. And I was look was watching it saying, oh, this is like supposed to show that Edison's like, this is his last few dollars. And the guy says, oh, I'll just take a five. And he takes a $5 bill. Yeah, that's over $100 in 1869 money. <laughs> so this like little, oh, yeah, I'll just take the five. That'd be like if you... Oh, if you, you know, open up your wallet. So I was like, oh, yeah, I'll just take a hundred bucks. <laughs> That'll tide me over. Yeah. I do think, though, here's a side note on your side note. <laughs> is, uh, how expenses were just different across the board, where it's like, yes, I'll just take the five. is the same as I'll just take a hundred. But it was also with the expectation of I just need something to tide me over and I need food and lodging for the next few days, which means I do right. need about a hundred dollars. But the, it was, that was more okay of a loan back then, so the casualness is still maybe appropriate. Sure. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, so Edison tells Tesla that if he fixes the generators, he'll get him fi- give him $50,000. Tesla fixes the generators and says, hey, man, where's my $50,000? And Edison said, oh, I was just joking about that. Mm. And Tesla's like, uh, no, we had a deal. And Edison says, oh, well, you're European. That's You just didn't understand my American sense of humor when I was telling you that i was going to pay you fifty thousand dollars huh so tesla leaves and then gets kind of the ultimate payback by then developing the ac generator the alternating current generator which was actually way better than edison's dc generators they could vary in voltage and they could also be spaced at much longer intervals so dc power was only kind of viable in a densely populated area like New York, because your transmission lines couldn't be any more than like a mile long, whereas an AC generator could have a transmission line that's 100 miles long. Oh, so without AC, you were never going to get electricity to rural areas. Correct. Yeah. And that and that's kind of the the war of the currents in a nutshell. Okay, we'll talk about it more later. Yeah, we'll go more into it in the Tesla episode. But that's kind of the the gist of it. You got DC which was first, but not as good, and that's Edison. Okay. And then you have AC, and that's better, um, and that's that's uh, that's Tesla. And actually, Tesla's generators, it's kind of funny, because it's like a double-edged sword. So Tesla's generators, they were way better, but they actually worked a little too well. They worked so well that investors didn't believe him when he was like bringing his stats to try and get money. They were like, yeah, no, absolutely. Like, you're very clearly a charlatan. That's impossible. Ah. <laughs> huh. Which here, real quick on the term charlatan that you've used twice, because it's, it's a word that obviously I've heard throughout. I actually, I think I knew intuitively what it meant, but I actually had to Google just to make sure I had the actual dictionary definition of charlatan right in my head. 
but it, it is just, I mean, you're using it right, obviously. It's just someone who claims to have knowledge that they actually don't. So it's the snake oil salesman kind of thing that, hey, I have this brand new product or I have this specific knowledge that's going to make your life better, but I'm full of it. That's a charlatan. You scared me for a second. When you said you looked it up, I was like, oh, shit, I've used that like two times. Have I been have I been using that word incorrectly my whole life? No, no you're using it correctly, <laughs> but I guess I didn't know that it specifically means someone who claims to have knowledge or technology or something that is okay. not what they say it is or not yeah not what it appears to be yeah it's a uh, lockhart lockhart from harry potter 2 yeah okay he's a charlatan yeah gotcha okay yeah so after his falling out with tesla um in 1884 his first wife mary um she dies the official cause of death that was listed was congestion of the brain which is kind of a catch-all term mm. for some sort of brain issue no one knows for sure but it probably was either a stroke a tumor or even something like a morphine overdose because a lot of the time if you're you know in the 1870s 1880s there were a lot of things where it's like oh you're having even a minor medical issue we're just gonna load you up with morphine you'll feel great you won't even notice that <laughs> you know you're having that issue anymore. which was true <laughs> But they weren't real big on what second order consequences back then, right? Yeah, uh, right. She was she wasn't even thirty years old yet, right? Like they they kind of definitely glossed no, over 29. that. No, twenty nine. Like that's a major tragedy, and they're just like, yeah, we don't yep. need to talk about that. Died at the age of twenty nine. Yep. And then he marries Mina Miller in eighteen eighty six, and she was twenty years old when they got married. So he was thirty nine, and she was twenty, which is I don't know, still a little bit of an age gap, but. Definitely better than 24 to 16. <laughs> so he goes on to wage this AC war against Tesla. So is that still before the light bulb then? Or is we, are we after at this point? No, 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 no. This is after the oh, light that's bulb. that's right. After. Okay, that's right. Because his wife died. His wife died a couple years after the light bulb. That's right. Okay. Yeah. He, he does invent the light bulb, or he gets the longer lasting light bulb in 1879. But then, and this is where the, the like you have the biggest deviation between the movie and history. It wasn't necessarily him versus this businessman to try and, you know, oh, are we going to have oil or my electric lights power in New York City? Like, everyone knew that the electric light was going to be the future. There was no stopping it. The movie makes it seem like it would die here. Correct. This is where my biggest issue is with the historical accuracy, because it instead of, is it going to be electric light or gas lamps, it, instead, it's are we going to have AC or DC power powering these new electric lights? Oh, electric was just a given. Huh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's where you have the War of the Currents, which I think is a much more compelling historical tale than this made-up one that isn't even real. But it's more complicated to to explain. Yeah. Oh, so there was no... Okay. Was there a big lighting ceremony? Though? Like, Was there a big moment where, boom, we've lit New York City and they get that big cheer moment from the crowd? Did that even happen? Not that I saw. I think it, w it was more of like a gradual oh, gotcha. thing. It's not like they, you there know. There was no single moment of turning the lights on in New York City. Correct. Yeah. Oh, that's disappointing. It that was a cool moment in the movie. <laughs> yeah. So he, during this war of occurrence uh, against Tesla, though, he he kind of, like Edison's smart enough to know that AC's better. But it's not his. And so therefore, right. I don't make more money if AC wins. Right, right, right. But instead of instead of combating it on its merits, because he can't, he just results to this smear campaign against AC as a, 
current dangerous right right yeah he says that uh he says that it's dangerous he said that you're more likely to get electrocuted from it and he would actually do these exhibitions where he would take ac power and just electrocute animals in front of audiences to show oh this is how dangerous ac is oh so here's the shady stuff where he basically straight up just throws tesla under the bus and he's got the reputation as our hero thomas edison who gives us all these things and so everyone besides with edison Yes. Ugh. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, the the public does a lot, but I mean, AC ends up winning out in the end, and you do have like J.P. Morgan is starts to get on the side of the AC, and the, and you get to, um, okay. General okay. Electric is founded around this time, and then yeah, by the, by the end of it, AC is the standard because it's just so much better. You, you know, it's it's undeniable. Well, I guess I thought they're and they're both because like obviously there's the band ACDC, but I, I guess I thought you would even get outlets where like they supported both, right? And this, how does that work? Or I, I don't know enough about this. I guess. Um, I don't think you get you can't have like outlets that support. You, you both. cannot have an ACDC outlet. <laughs> well, I, AC and DC are just the two. It's not both. It's like one or the other. There's AC and DC. Okay. Okay. I guess I was. I thought there was a way they actually got married to together at some point. Uh, but I'll, I'll accept that that is not the case. <laughs> I don't know that much about it either. So let me uh, <laughs> let me see if I, this might be this might be something that we go more in depth on in the test episode yeah, as well. We, we can uh, we can we can kick we can kick the kick the can down the road on this one. Yeah, let's ignore this for right now. We'll uh, we'll address this next time, maybe. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. The other big other than electric power, electric lights. The other thing that Edison is probably most known for is his innovations in motion pictures. Yes. Which is something that, it, like you said, they mention it briefly at the end of the movie, but none of the plot of the movie goes into it at all. Right. So I just I had some some stuff about that that I wanted to talk about because it's it's important to history. And also as a movie and history podcast, this is like another one of those perfect Venn diagram things right, where this is right. the history of history and the history of movies. Like when we talked about Hugo, for sure. And yeah, and, and this is where it fits in our timeline anyway. So yes, go. Yeah. So the first motion picture camera was developed by a French inventor, a French guy named Louis Le Prince. Again, here's an example of Edison not actually inventing the first thing. But he tells one of his engineers, hey, take this motion picture camera and improve it so we can make a patent on it because this is going to make us a lot of money. So they do. They make an improved motion picture camera that they then patent. And then at the same time, they invent whole cloth, a device called a kinetoscope, which is like a peephole viewer that you actually use. You know, you would crank it and it would it would you could watch the motion picture in this kinetoscope so you would have the film in there and there'd be a light you know that would shine through the film you look through the peephole and either an electric motor or a hand crank would turn it and you would just you would watch it through this little like viewing hole so another kind of genius thing of edison is the way that he he could see the invention and he could see not only like okay i can take this and i can make it a little bit better but also I could I see how I could make a bunch of money using this thing. Mm. So at this point, after they make this camera, Edison's invention shop also now doubles as a film studio because they start not only selling the cameras, but we can make these film reels of different stuff. They were it was like circus acts, boxing matches, 
you know, little short films, you know, a minute or so long, and they would sell these reels to people that they could then view on their kinetoscopes that Edison also sold to these people. And so sometimes people couldn't pay the money to necessarily have their own kinetoscope or buy their own reels, but you could also go to Edison's shop and go to their viewing area, buy a ticket, and you could buy a ticket to watch the film. Right, that's that's more who they were selling them to. Is more they would be selling to exhibitors, not to individuals, for the most part. I mean, all rich people might right. buy them, but they'd be too expensive for the general public. Uh, public. Yeah. So he's making again money hand over fist. He starts to have an issue though because now other people are buying the cameras, and now they're using them to make their own short films right. and making their own money. And Edison actually starts suing those people huh. and saying, "Hey, anything that you make." Using my invention, any art that you make, any film that you make, I get a piece. That's mine. That's my movie. Oh, interesting. Because this is kind of a whole, this is a whole new ballgame. There's nothing, there's no comp right. to this. There's no legal precedent for any of it this. It would be like saying, hey, if, it'd be like, I'm, a, I'm Gutenberg, and if you write a book, I get a cut of that. Because you wrote a book, and I invented the way to sell books to people. Not even, not even I get a cut of that. That's my book now. Oh, wow. So, man. So it'd be like... Yeah, it'd be like, you know, Sony saying, oh, yeah, all those all those photos you shoot on that Sony camera. Those are all ours now. And there's there's people that tried to do this with podcasting. They tried to say, like, I invented podcasting. If you make a podcast, I get a cut. They tried that same thing uh, like 10 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. With any with any technological thing, you're always going to have people that are trying to squeeze the most money out of it for themselves. It happened this weekend at time of recording because threads just got released from Instagram and and, and Musk is trying to say, you can't do that. That's just Twitter. I own Twitter. Right. And it's like, well, good luck with that. It's a different platform. Right. So Edison was not successful in that endeavor in his pursuit of any movie that's shot on my camera is my movie. But I just thought that that was an interesting thing, that that's something that he tried in the early days of uh, motion pictures. Edison Studio produced over 1,100 films. um, Which is a total of 1,100 minutes, to be fair. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're we're not talking 1,100 Lord of the Rings movies here. (laughs) These movies are literally sometimes like... Seconds, yeah. The oldest surviving film with a copyright called Fred Ott Sneeze is like 15 seconds long. Right. And it's literally just a s- silent movie of a guy sneezing. Yeah. Uh, and that's 1894. Some of the other movies that came out from his studio, The Great Train Robbery um, in 1903. I wonder if that was his. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep, that's an Edison one. That's one of the most famous early movies because it would it used editing and montage to tell story. Um, it's one of the first films to do that, as well as the first Frankenstein movie that came out in 1910. Okay. Um, that's another Edison movie. And that one was that one was a whopping 16 minutes long. Now, that, you probably would know this. I was going to say, is that the James Whale one? Or is that even before James Whale? You, we can pass on that. No, I don't expect you to know that. <laughs> Hang on. Let me look. <laughs> I, I can I can look it up real fast. So the, the, the reason that's because uh, I'm pretty sure, I mean, I haven't seen this forever, but there's the movie Gods and Monsters where I think Ian McKellen plays James Whale. I could be way off there, though. Uh, this says James Whale Frankenstein is 1931. Okay, okay, I knew, yeah, okay. It, it, it's kind of the first iconic one, so that's why I didn't right. think it was necessarily this 1910 one. Yeah, this is just the first film adaptation of yes, Frankenstein. Yes. okay. Let's see, oh, okay, and then one other movie that Edison's studio made was called Electrocuting an Elephant, and it's exactly what it sounds like. 
There was an elephant named Topsy um, who belonged to a circus in New York. And as part of a publicity stunt, the people that owned the elephant were going to execute it. And at first, they were going to just do it in public as part of an opening event for a theme park. Like it just needed to be put down for whatever reason, like age or whatever. I don't even think it. No, it, it was just it was just a publicity thing. Like we're going to kill an elephant. Oh my god! And like, <laughs> yeah. So the ASPCA steps in and says, "No, you're not going to do that. You can't just do that to the public. Like that's a cruelty thing." So they said, "All right, we won't make it a public thing. It'll be invite only." <laughs> and the ASPCA says, "Okay, that's a fair compromise." <laughs> and this is listening discretion advised for this part because it is kind of gross. So, I don't editing rich if you want to tell people how far ahead to skip. I will say 30 to 60 seconds. <laughs> All right. So, they they take this elephant. You can actually you can watch it on Wikipedia, on the uh, Wikipedia page for this movie, um Electric Union Elephant. It's a minute and 16 seconds long and they take this elephant. They had fed it carrots laced with cyanide. They had a steel cable a steel noose cable around its neck connected to a steam-powered winch, and they put copper boots on it connected to 6,600 volts of electricity. So it's being poisoned. They electrocute it. You see a bunch of smoke go up because it's basically cooking this elephant from its feet, and it, like, stiffens up, falls over, and then you watch the noose tighten, and that's the movie. It's kind of... it's. It sounds, honestly, a lot more graphic than it actually is because the footage is so grainy. You can't mm. really tell what's going on with the noose. Right. And you kind of just see the elephant just kind of like stiffen up and fall over. But yeah, so that's Electrocuting an Elephant. That was an Edison studio film. It was very commercially successful. <sighs> it's, yeah, it's just crazy. Because I, I, I understand on the one hand was like these things were interesting and that they were novel. But man, it's just kind of crazy how short-sighted they were with the uh, the other end of it and the cruelty aspect, especially when you said, I, I guess I just assumed these bodies that were kind of stepping in didn't exist yet. But you said, oh, no, they actually did step in and say, you can't do this publicly. Yeah, I don't know. It's like, uh, I guess life was just kind of cheaper back then, to be honest. Well, shoot, in, in Apocalypse Now, because they didn't film it over here, they like behead a, a muskox or whatever in Apocalypse Now. Yeah. But it's yeah. like, oh, they didn't film it in the U.S., but they can show it in the U.S. And there it is. Yep. Yeah, so that's. That's uh Edison dies in uh in 1931 over the course of his life he filed over a thousand patents and kind of like they show at the end of the movie where they kind of make a list of oh here's all these things that Edison quote invented he did invent a lot of stuff he also just made improvements and patented a lot of stuff right. but it was everything you know the electric light phonographs the motion picture that's all stuff he's really known for mining equipment different chemical patents that he had batteries yeah he was just a very a very prolific figure in american culture at this time because so many things that you would use as there as this technical technological evolution is happening around the turn of the century so much of the stuff that you're using either is or is being marketed as invented by thomas edison Right. Yeah. So yeah, it makes sense. He'd be a household household name for sure. Yeah. I think kind of looking at all this stuff, we, we've talked about, we've mentioned them already with, you know, the, the musks and the jobs and all those people today. 
And I was kind of just looking at a little bit of like the history of General Electric as it ties into Thomas Edison here. So let's take like an Amazon. So we know how Amazon started with Jeff Bezos selling books out of his garage. And then that ends up being selling everything on his website, not just books. And then that ends up extending into movies and stores. And, and they kind of just diversify from there. And we're like, oh, that's kind of crazy how they're doing that and just kind of having their hand in everything. But it's like, that's what big companies have always done. So like General Electric starts as just, you know, a company to kind of house a lot of Edison's projects and you know jp morgan is involved with all that kind of stuff and then they just kind of diversified where that they still exist today so yeah an amazon or a google of the world you know or whatever could still exist in a hundred years time and it almost be like a trivia thing that like oh amazon that's you know you're driving their car in 2130 or whatever they actually started as a bookseller. I mean, so it's almost kind of like yeah. that with a lot of these other companies that have, that have been yep. around over the years. And, you know, they just kind of uh, ebb, ebb and flow. So, yeah, the, uh, as they kind of keep trying to invent the light bulb in, in the film, and the, the couple big breakthroughs they have are, one, we need a to put it in a vacuum tube because basically we're getting right. too much oxygen, and that's what's making it burn too hot, too fast. So that's kind of a key uh, inspiration. And then the next quest is to figure out what material to make the filament out of. And it kind of does some interesting things here. So one, I kept waiting for them to stumble upon tungsten. I'm like almost shouting at the screen, tungsten, tungsten. But like yeah. Edison <laughs> did not invent the tungsten light bulb. That was, right. that was William Coolidge around 1911. So the main light bulb of the 20th century that everyone had in their homes, that was not Edison. That was later with another guy building upon his inventions, as kind of right. always happens in in human history. The other weird one is they, you know, he says he calls this thing a filament, and then, then they like basically like, or what do you mean? He's like, I don't know, I I just made up that word just now, and it's like, oh, Edison coined the word filament for the little piece of like thread or metal that's inside of a light bulb. It's like, well, no, not really. Like, yes, for the little thing that goes in a light bulb, Edison sure said to use that, but. The word filament had been around for hundreds of years before that because it just <laughs> it just means the little thread, like yeah. It was just a weird thing to put in the movie and be like, oh, he invented the word filament. Well, no, he just applied it because that's what it was. It was a filament. It's so weird, right? It'd be like making a movie about the telephone and someone said he said, oh, I'm going to dial the phone. It's like, oh yes, I just invented the word dial. It's like no, dial has a meaning. <laughs> yeah. Okay, side note there, because we don't have a... There actually is, I think, an Alexander the Alexander Bell inventing the cell phone movie, but it's not available for us to stream, and so we weren't able to include it here. But the one uh, word etymology thing that's always kind of fascinated me, because it was a complete takeover and shift of the word, is call. So a telephone call, I'll call you. Oh, it's, right. It's, it's used completely. So, but <laughs> in the late 1800s, you would have to specify telephone call as a new way to call, but calling already existed and meant a thing that we don't even use it for today. If I were to call you in 1830, it means I actually go to and show up to your house. So yes. to call on someone was to go and show up and talk to them in person right. because that was the only way to call. And then the telephone completely changed that. And now I could, oh my gosh, I can telephone call you to the point that we forget that it ever meant the first thing in the first place. Yeah, I don't. I, I always kind of find that found that fascinating because you would never today in the 21st century say I'll call you or I'll call on you 
and that that would mean you would show up at their house. They'd be like, what are you doing? Well, I thought I was going to call. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yep. <laughs> or you think about the term gentleman caller. It's right. the suitor coming yeah. to the girl's house to call yeah. on her. Anyway, just a word etymology thing that's always kind of uh, fascinated me. And actually, with the turn of the century, the Industrial Revolution, and the technologification. Ooh, yeah. There's a new word. Good made up word. <laughs> of, <laughs> of not just America, but the world at this time. I'm sure we'll stumble across a bunch of those oh, in upcoming yeah, episodes yeah. of like words that used to mean this and now mean this or this word that we use for a certain thing you wouldn't even think of where it originated from. Yeah. Let's see. Uh, I do have a few other things in my notes, even on Edison here. So it also looks like that the apple pie and milk thing that we see throughout the movie was true. Edison liked him some apple pie and milk. Okay. Which is uh, throughout the film. The other characters' names they did get right were his first two children. Marion is his first daughter, and Thomas Edison Jr. is his first son. And they show him calling the son Dash in the film. Okay, yeah. Which is from Morse code. And then I don't remember them calling the daughter Dot, but they did call the daughter Dot as a nickname. So his first two kids were Dot and Dash. Yeah, his first two kids were nicknamed Dot and Dash. Yes, yeah. That is, that is actually accurate. Yeah, so it makes sense with you kind of talking about him like learning Morse code, self-taught as a kid. And then they kind of hint at the film, and I think it was accurate that he was considered like, he was just really good at telegraphic telegraph machines. Like, I think just, I'm guessing that just means he could yes. translate it super fast both ways, is my guess. Yep. Yeah. And we did talk about before how, uh, probably in the general episode, where... They initially had printouts for all these telegraph machines, but all the operators got so good at it, they could just do it by sound. So they basically took away the printer and just made it the sound ladder because everyone just got so good at interpreting the sounds. Now, what we also see in the film that did happen, but with his second wife, they show him propose to his wife via tapping the little thing in the office so that she can hear it upstairs. Basically, he's proposing via Morse code. Yeah. That didn't happen with his first wife. Right. That's how he proposed to his second wife, because supposedly his daughter, Dot, uh, actually witnessed it. That she witnessed. And so oh, she, okay. she's the one even is I think she's the source of my dad proposed to my stepmom via Morse code. And I saw it. And because his first wife would have been like just a kid, and so she probably wouldn't have known Morse code anyway. <laughs> you said she was working in the thing upstairs, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I honestly, so, it, man, not, not to, anyway, you know, just the whole judging the past with the morals of today and blah, blah, blah. It's, right, I, I but, yeah, think about, it's, but think about child labor, think about child labor. I was 16, she'd been a working woman for eight years. <laughs> 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 so it was just kind of different. And then they don't even talk about, like, the even the, the idea of an adolescence was invented in the 20th century. And that pre-20th century, you basically just went from kid to adult like that. Well, yeah, because that's what, like, like, you think of, uh like a quinceanera or a bar mitzvah yeah, or something yeah. like that's when you're 14 15 years right. old and that's like your quote you know becoming a man becoming a woman it was literal you you are now not a kid you're right. now an adult there is nothing in between you're either kid or you're adult right back in the day that was that was way way more common to have a 14 15 16 year old not not saying it's right or anything i'm just saying that was way more common no, 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 right but at the time how they did and it was it, accepted yes. back then yeah right. exactly right so a 16 year old person working was not a kid anymore so she was an adult if you're not a kid you must be an adult right. well because how many british monarchs have we talked about on, oh the, on our yeah. world history timeline who were 13 14 15 years old and married with children like 
Right. It was just that's just how it was back then. Right. It yeah, it's yeah, it's bizarre by today's standards for sure. Yeah, the one that comes to mind right. is uh Henry the Seventh's mom. I mean she wasn't a queen because he, you know, he had to win via battle. But uh his mom was thirteen when he was born. Like it was just a whole different yeah. ball game back then. So another one worth so Thomas Edison Jr. was a charlatan. <laughs> so <laughs> The one thing he got from his dad was not genius invention and technical prowess. It was salesmanship. So okay. Thomas Edison Jr. was such a charlatan that his dad had to pay him to change his name. Because he was Oof. Thomas Edison Jr. was sullying the Edison name so badly because he would get paid these out these other companies would have some product basically some, you know, snake snake oil type thing that they wanted to sell and to sell it, they would give Thomas Edison Jr. a lot of money to put the Edison name behind it to sell it and it was all mm. crap. Yeah, okay. And Ed- and Edison Jr. did not care. He just took the paycheck and didn't have any qualms about it. To where yeah, his mom, or sorry, his dad actually had to pay him to stop using a name. And this is the guy that spent years in and out of mental institutions. He actually died just 4 years after his father probably from uh, substance abuse issues. So poor Thomas Edison Jr. did not have a great life. And we just see him as a kid in the film with his dad trying to get him to talk into the early phonograph and all those kinds of things. And I didn't do, I wrote down the names of the other kids. So he had three kids with the first wife and we only see the first two in the film. And then he uh, had three kids with his second wife. Yeah. I just kind of skimmed. I actually didn't write this stuff down, but I'm, but those guys, his, his other sons were uh, uh, much more successful. Um, I think, you know, one, one was a, uh, a good inventor i believe and another one even like man i, I wish i wrote this down. i think one was even like the governor of ohio or something like that like look up uh look up charles oh. edison real quick i think it was charles that was like in politics and pretty successful yeah 42nd governor of new jersey, new jersey. 46th okay. under secretary of the navy or sorry 46th secretary of the navy and was the assistant secretary of the navy so yeah a successful okay. politician okay Another word I had to look up was incandescent. <laughs> like, so the technical invention was, you know, Edison developed the incandescent light bulb. And it's, again, it's a term I've heard with light bulbs. I actually didn't really know what it meant. It just means something that emits light when you add heat to it. So an incandescent light bulb okay. is literally just a bulb because that's the shape and it emits yeah. light when heat is added to that filament, but the heat is added via electricity. So it's an incandescent, heat added, makes it glow, light, obviously it's emitting light, in a bulb, incandescent light bulb. Right. We, we just kind of take those terms for granted, but never actually, I feel like, break it down to what it actually means. Another one, is, and then they, they use it in the film. This is why it actually, like, it just seems so bizarre, because it... To me, it seemed not only an, ac- an anachronism to have it set in the film, set in the 1870s, 1880s. I felt like, oh my gosh, they had this term in the 1940s when this movie, when this film came out. So he talks about, oh, there must be a bug still, like trying to work the bugs out of his machines. I'm oh, like, right. That's that's true. So we don't know. So we don't know the exact beginnings of when the term bug was used in technology. To me, like a problem in technology. I always talk about software bugs today. But yes, they were using back in Edison's day because the first known use of bug as a problem with technology is in a letter from Edison to some of his other people saying they were like, still worrying about it must still have some bugs to work out kind of thing. That's in a letter from Edison mm. in like the 1870s. So 
he didn't necessarily coin it in this regard, but he at least was using it in the 1870s. It was popularized at the time. So I, I thought that was interesting that that term goes back 150 years uh, at this point uh, using bug like that. Right. Which is funny that like just all the downstream effects. So Edison writes this letter in the 1870s saying using the word bug as an issue with technology that then, you know, filters down. And when computers are a thing, then when you have, you know, issues in your computer system or your computer code, that is also then referred to as a bug because of this thing that happened over 100 years before right. at, the, at the time of this invention. Right. And then now today in the software that I use to write code, the debugging, the, mm. you know, you have debugging and the yeah. icon is just, it's a little bug. Right. And it's like, wait, if, if you were just like an alien, just looking at this, why is there an insect? Why is an insect the icon for that? The other one that, I mean, you know, the kids in school now are already probably not familiar with it at all, but it's, it's, it's going to carry forward, you know, into, into the future here. The save icon is a three and a half inch yep. floppy disk. Yep. Well, when's the last time you've seen a three and a half inch floppy disk? Right. But everyone knows that means save. But like Gen Z doesn't know what the heck a three and a half inch floppy disk is, but they know that button means save. And so it's kind of the same kind of same kind of thing. You know, my daughter the other day asked me, she said, what does paste mean? Like, what what does that word actually mean? Like cut and paste, copy and paste. What is paste? Oh, right. You're like glue <laughs> well because she's like she's like i know like toothpaste but like what does that have to do with like moving something on a computer that's a, such a great gen z question isn't it yeah <laughs> right yeah and i was like well paste is it's another name for glue and so if you you know if you wanted stick to take this picture yeah, yeah. and stick it on this right you wanted to take it from here and stick it here you would cut it out and then glue paste it onto the second thing she, oh okay huh. but that was like yeah, she said, I, oh, I didn't, I, I never knew, I never knew the word paste. That's a great example. That's even one I feel like I'm t- I've taken for granted. Like, I know if I think about it, but I, had, it's, I probably hadn't stopped to think about it. But yeah, that's another good one. Let's see. Uh, so on the sound thing, we, we see him with the Mary Had a Little Lamb thing. So I feel like they kind of gloss over this a little bit in the film. So uh, yes and no. Other people had developed ways prior to Edison's phonograph of recording sounds but they hadn't been able to produce them back. So they had developed ways to like take voice sound in and then basically almost like a Morse code thing. Like they basically would have it as a line now that then you could maybe try to reinterpret or re- like you could read it. I could read this mm. line as like what you had must have said into the thing, but they couldn't get the playback side of it down. But Edison right. is the guy who figured out the playback system, which we see in the film. So that, that was mm-hmm. kind of the key difference there. He wasn't the first voice recording but he's the first recording that can be played back. Oh, so speaking of the recording stuff, something a, a note that I had about the movie itself that I thought was kind of strange. There's the scene where he's trying to get his son to cry. Oh, yes. So that he can record it. And he says, this kid never cries. How come this kid, I can't get this kid to cry. He just won't, he won't cry at all when I'm, and the mom's like, he, he said, doesn't this kid ever cry? And the, the mom says, he cries all the time with me. And he's, oh, well, I just can't get this kid to cry. And it was like, it was almost insinuating, like, "Oh, he's such a good father. His kid, he's oh, never seen his right, kid cry. Right. That's 
that's a complete lie. Like, not only was he not only was he not an awesome father, he was like never around his kids. He was always working. Like right, he was never right. around his family. We do get a hint of that. He snaps at his wife at one point in the film, which is kind of a bad look that uh, I think even in 1940 was meant to be kind of a bad look where he's basically mm. she's basically like you're just like slaving away in here. And he's just like, leave me alone, will you? Because he's kind of like yeah. strapped for money and everything. So they, they do kind of show that as his uh, low point. So a uh, one other note here, this is kind of random, but I did write it down. So, like, the opening of the movie, and obviously, sort of the 1940s, they kind of front-loaded everything, all the credits and everything were at the beginning. We kind of, like, move music overtures at the beginning. The music to start, this film about Thomas Edison, is, like, this suspenseful Alfred Hitchcock-sounding music. Did you notice yeah. that? And then Strange. it kind of It kind of then altered and went through basically every possible genre after that. But they started <laughs> with the suspense music which i just thought was so bizarre it's like they didn't even understand how to use music in film back in those days um in that first scene when he's in new york and he he goes to talk to mr ells in that like little basement lab or whatever and there's a guy there who says that he can age whiskey with electricity oh yeah yeah that's not a thing oh really <laughs> you can't just shock whiskey and make no, it i mean that makes sense but like in the film i was like oh huh that's interesting <laughs> yeah I, I don't know i don't know what what the deal is with that also this movie has connections to my number one and number two favorite christmas movies of all time ben ells in the movie is played by henry travers and gene lockhart plays mr taggart so Henry Travers is Clarence from It's oh, a Wonderful Life. Yes, yes. And Gene Lockhart is the judge in Miracle on 34th Street. Oh, that one I didn't remember. I I, I knew, uh, I've, I've seen, I've only seen actually Miracle on 34th Street once, but I've seen, uh, I mean, I probably have It's a Wonderful Life memorized, but yeah, uh, that's interesting. Oh, I, I watched Miracle, Miracle on 34th Street and It's a Wonderful Life, watch them at least once okay. a year. Nice, nice. So, so Die Hard is not top two Christmas movies for you? <laughs> not top two. <laughs> This probably isn't the time to talk about whether Die Hard is a Christmas movie or not. Okay, so the last thing, if you don't have anything else, last thing I wanted to mention was kind of Ohio and the Great Lakes area here. So I I couldn't actually find, and maybe you have some insight, maybe this is kind of an open question to the listener here, innovation coming out of the Great Lakes area is kind of unreal. So Edison, uh, like you said, born in Ohio, raised in Michigan. Henry Ford, a Michigan guy. Rockefeller, born in upstate New York, which is still kind of Great Lakes adjacent. But then he's like in his teens in Ohio and gets big in Cleveland, Ohio. Carnegie, yep. born in Skyland, but then moves to Pennsylvania. So he's Great Lakes area. The Wright brothers, obviously the flight was down in North Carolina, but like they're from the Ohio, Indiana area. All these people out of the Great Lakes area. Isn't it funny? This is this is a tangent to this tangent, but isn't it funny how North Carolina milks that whole first and flight thing? It's like, the Wright brothers weren't from North Carolina. They didn't invent anything in North Carolina. The only thing they did was test their invention there. But to this day, you got the Wright first flyer and, and the first yeah. in flight all over the, the North Carolina license plates. Yeah. It's like they, they like barely had anything to do with North Carolina. It happened here. It happened here. It happened here. For, meanwhile, Orville and Wilbur like, would be like, oh, yeah, I guess we did do it there. Like, they're not from there. Right. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then uh, so... Just as I kind of, I think I said off ear to you, I would kind of maybe do a quick little look at the history of, of Ohio. Nothing too much to talk about here, but it is kind of just so like, obviously this is, you know, so not Louisiana purchase territory, but still kind of like area, area that the French and the British would have been fighting on during like seven years war and all that kind of stuff. But when it was kind of early U.S. days, this was the Ohio territory. This was definitely considered, the, or sorry, even the Northwest territory. 
at the time, which is just kind of funny to think of Ohio as the Northwest Territory. And then uh, in 1803, uh, Jefferson signed uh, an act of Congress. They basically said, okay, these are Ohio's official borders. It's like, okay, it's the 17th state. But they skipped a step. Congress never actually formally signed it into like law with uh, Ohio admitting as the 17th state. So like they kind of like Jefferson did the borders. They just kind of skipped the steps. And so it wasn't until 1953 when they were getting ready to celebrate their 150th anniversary that they were like, oops, we're not technically a state. <laughs> kind of like we had mentioned during the Lincoln episode with uh, the ratifying the or the certification of the ratification, like all the stuff like checking the boxes to make the 13th Amendment official that like Mississippi oh, right. wasn't until 2013 after the movie Lincoln comes out. Same kind of thing yeah. here. Yes, Ohio is still considered the 17th state. But officially, they didn't get that through Congress until the 1950s when they realized <laughs> that they had missed it somehow the first time around. So it's just kind of interesting how stuff like that happens. And then obviously it's, it's you know, on the north during the Civil War and in a, in a good spot there because it's kind of right next to, you know, Kentucky and what becomes West Virginia. And so right next to Pennsylvania. So just kind of an important battleground. And then you do kind of get into you know, the Wright brothers and all that kind of stuff for our actually we'll shoot there there after Edison, but not too much to talk about with Ohio, just kind of being right there in the what's called the Rust Belt would be something made to kind of we, we talk about all these industry guys being in this area, Ohio, Pennsylvania, right. with the steel, Carnegie Steel and just the industry Rockefeller. You can definitely see why that's got the nickname the Rust Belt as kind of just kind of this gritty industrial part uh, of the country and just all the decades of innovation uh, getting to Michigan with uh, Henry Ford and all that kind of stuff. You know, something something else about Ohio, kind of history related. Ohio has this like outsized population of astronauts from that state. Oh, yeah. Yeah. 25 astronauts over the years from Ohio, including some big names. John Glenn from Ohio. Okay. Neil Armstrong from Ohio. Huh. Jim Lovell from Apollo 13. He's yeah. from Ohio. Judy Resnick killed on the Challenger explosion. She's from Ohio. How many, I guess, so I, in 25, I know is a lot when you're talking about astro- astronauts, but like, what is like the total number of astronauts, period, from the US? Let me see. Because I have no idea if it's like 50 or like 500, which is still, I mean, 500 is still an elite number, but because at the end of the day, are you, can you be an astronaut before you've gone to a space? Like, you're, are you considered an astronaut even when you're in the training? Yes. Well, yeah. So you can be part of the, ast- like, you're part of the astronaut core. Right. Without having gone to space. Even if you never end up going to space? Okay. Okay, so this is okay, this was two thousand five. It said that there was only three hundred and thirty six. Ever. Yeah. Or is that active in five? No, that was that was ever. Okay. So here's an article from November of twenty twenty one talking about when that SpaceX crew went to space and that was that meant that the number of people total in the world that had ever gone to space was 600. And 25 of them were from Ohio? Right, ever. Okay. One in four of one in six, one in six, about 4%. About 4% of every person in space ever was from Ohio. Yeah. Yeah, so this this article that I saw from 05, there was every American astronaut ever, and it was 336. So probably more since then, but probably not right, 100 right. more. Like, it's still a really small number, and the fact that 25 of them are from Ohio is kind of crazy. And that it's like Neil Armstrong, Jim Lovell, John Glenn, well, like right. three of the most famous astronauts of all right. time, all from Ohio. Right. 
right? If you're going to start naming astronauts, they might have, you know, three of the 10 fam- most famous kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, yeah. So yeah, that'll do it for Thomas Edison, but we will get to his rival Nikola Tesla next week when we talk about the 2006 Christopher Nolan movie, The Prestige. And a quick call to action if you want to help us out, go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you can leave us a review and leave us a five-star review, please. And or share this podcast with a friend you think might like it. And don't hesitate to reach out to us with any questions, comments, or concerns. You can email me at simmons at tracknerds.com. Simmons.